What is up, sweaty summer strangers? <laughs> it's been pretty sweaty here lately. Except not, not, here, not the last it's, no. couple of days. I felt, the last it's funny days. because I actually felt bad the other day that one of the days it was like just hot all around the country. I think it was like there three days. There were people days. dying in yeah, other areas. Yeah, and it was like three days ago when we were at at school because I'm, I'm helping out with a different school mm. at farmers for summer school, but we were on the tennis courts and we were all like huddled like in where the sun was out because when you were in where the shade was it was actually chilly oh. like it was weird it was like a really chilly that morning we're all out there we're like man i wish i would have brought a jacket and the rest of the country is like baking well and the world i mean like spain and the uk yeah. they've been having like actual people dying from the heat wave yep. so it's crazy you know I'm, I'm glad i live where i do right off the lake and there's mm-hmm. like the wind through my living room window is always like off the lake so it's yep. always cooler it's usually cooler here too but every once in a while we still get the 90s with crazy yeah, humidity especially this upcoming week it's going to be moist it's going to be very moist oh uh, we didn't introduce ourselves i am oh, sorry <laughs> i am kurt i'm krista and with me is moist krista uh, no oh not moist Gross. krista dry krista yes <laughs> oh. this is i don't like either good of either should we just start over scratches <laughs> burn this. just trash this whole thing <laughs> but anyway welcome to the strange sessions if you've never been here before we apologize, but that's usually the way we are. Yep. And also, so. if you're already turned off and you just want to get to the topic, check the show notes. Or if you just want to shut off the internet, the, yeah, the, the episode, go right in. Yeah, you just delete this episode immediately. <laughs> um, check the show notes. Though, Kurt, will have the, the timestamp of the actual start of the topic. Yep. If you don't want to hear the taste test, welcoming new strangers, housekeeping, etc. 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 Shout outs to our newest strangers, and those are Alyssa Pleasance. That's Aaron, the one I always talk about on here oh, that yeah. I geocache with. That's his daughter. Oh, hi, that Alyssa. I've known since she was like a little baby. And Fun. she listens now. So Alyssa, welcome to the podcast. Anthony Martinez, KT Spence, Travis Reinecke, and Miguel Martinez. Thank so, you guys so much for joining the welcome. strangers. Wow, that's we more didn't we that's, have like one last time? The last couple of weeks we've only had one. Wow. So word must be getting back out. Yeah. I don't know. But so you said you had tried submitting us to what? Amazon. Weren't there two of them? What do you mean? I thought you said there were two. Oh, things. there was Amazon and and like uh, Samsung podcasts, oh. but that that accepted us like right away. Oh. Amazon. <laughs> they'll let anyone in. They'll apparently. let anyone in. They have. They let uh, if they let us, and they'll let anyone in. But so we submitted to Amazon too. Takes I, a little more work to get into. Yeah, like I think <laughs> a little background. They're probably listening to me through my Alexa just to make sure that. <laughs> It's all, on the, it's all on the up and up. That's funny. Any housekeeping? I, I, I don't think so. If I sound weird this episode, I'm having tooth issues again. Uh-oh. Yeah, I think something's wrong with one of my back teeth, like mm. behind where the crown was put on last time. So I'm trying to eat like soft stuff, and I got a, a dentist appointment coming up, but I just don't want to have to get another crown. But mm. I feel, it's just weird because I feel like there's something wrong. I can't, yeah. like nothing is, you, you know, it's just mm-hmm. like knowing something's wrong. Yeah. Uh, do we have any housekeeping? I thought it was weird, the synchronicity with a Choco Taco. Yes, like, I it, did too. For the people that don't listen to our side sessions, yeah. last weekend's side session was about, uh, Corey picked the topic, it was about foods that we can't get anymore that we're nostalgic about. Mm-hmm. And, or they've changed Or they've changed, way. like Taco Doritos, which still yep. annoys me. And Taco Tacos, I, that was Jim's contribution because he, and I don't know that I can attest to this, but he was saying that 
they're smaller and the shell seems different than it's it different. was when we oh, were yeah. kids. Oh yeah, it's different than it used to be. But then we kind of talked about whether they were discontinued. And I, we're, I was like, no, they're not no, discontinued. You can still get yeah, them. you can still get them. But then For this now. week, this week, all of a sudden, Krista sent me that that news article, and I'm like, wow, that's yeah, weird synchronicity that we were literally just talking about the yeah. Choco Taco. Choco so now it really will so be an a, cho- a nostalgic yeah. treat because yes, you won't be able to get it. Get so get out and get your Choco Tacos, people. Yeah. Oh, I know people that are going out and buying. Oh, I'm sure. Boxes. I haven't had a Choco Taco. In probably oh, 10, 15 years. Oh, I had one within the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was at the gas station one day and just bought one on a whim, and I was like, ooh, this is good. Mm-hmm. But it's not they like, it, it's like Taco Doritos that I complained about in our side sessions that it's good, but it's not yeah, I would what agree. it used to be. I agree. When the, I mean, I remember the last time I had a Choco Taco, which again, had to be 10, 15 years ago, being slightly disappointed by it. And I don't, I don't know if things just taste better in your mind. I think a lot of that, I think some of it is that yeah. it tastes better because like we talked about in the episode, you're associating with that time in your Feeling life or the, the people nostalgia. that you were yeah. with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, that's our whole side session. That's Let's our, not recap that <laughs> yeah, right that's now. That's our side sessions. Uh, I don't know if we really have any other housekeeping. Again, we don't, I don't think so. really need... We have so many taste tests. More taste through. tests. Uh, I want to give a thank you to Michelle and my... I don't know. I never know what they would be. It's my cousin's son. So would that be... I don't know. Second don't ask cousin? me. I, it's t- three cousin? times removed. I don't but know my my cousin's son, Taylor, who got okay. us a treat, which we're going to have next time. And Michelle sent us a treat, which we're going to have next time. Okay. So this time... We're always welcoming postcards and other stuff. Though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We haven't gotten any postcards Not in a, a while, while, actually. No, and our whiteboards over here are looking a little empty. So what we're going to do, I took out, I pulled out a couple gifts. <gasps> voicemail? Don't we have a voicemail? We do, but... She messaged me that she didn't really want her name shared. Oh, do you have to edit it so out? So I might edit it out. Okay. Just, be, just to be on the safe side, which I get. So it was yeah, almost totally. good that I didn't bring it because yeah. she heard us talking about it. She's like, oh, I don't want you to use my name on there. And I'm oh, like, yeah, okay, yeah, that's yeah. totally cool. Edit it out. So I'll edit it out and we'll play everything except the, the name in the next one. We'll bleep it out. But I grabbed a couple things, uh, a couple gifts out of the package that Stephanie sent oh, us. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Stephanie, we love you. Oh my the God, stuff, so The generous. stuff in that box is amazing. I looked I can't at some of the, the other stuff in there. Costs. Yeah, so that thank you so much, Stephanie. And these are from the box. I believe these are going to be for you. Okay. <laughs> so she already gave us socks and a keychain, right? You got a key, an Arizona keychain, crystal growing, saguaro cactus. It's a cactus. cactus. Ooh, so like I can you grow. You can grow crystals on it. You grow. Yep. Oh, this is cute. Oh, it's like a little, <laughs> you're kind of a legend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a little um, zipper bag. Oh, I can definitely find a use for this. That's adorable. It's very green, which is my favorite color. I think the crystal growing thing is cool. It says for Krista. I hope you can find a use for it. Oh, so it's like, oh, you grow crystals? Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> I'll try really hard not to murder this. I don't think you can murder crystals. I'm so weird. I mean, I'm really good at certain houseplants. Other plant houseplants just But it's just, if it's crystals, I think that's completely different. It's like crystals an aren't cactus? an actual cactus. Okay, I'm going to take pictures of these the best I can. And it's she got terrible lighting. Thank you, Stephanie. This, I think, is going to be for either of us. And I think this should just go in our hutch. And it is... Oh, cool. A Bigfoot jigsaw puzzle. But what if I want to put it together and then hang it up That would be even cooler. That would be even better. Because Jim and I actually really like doing puzzles. Yeah. It's a thousand piece Bigfoot jigsaw puzzle. I love it. It's so cool. So this is awesome. Yeah. If you guys want to put this together... We totally want to put it together. I'll give this to you. 
And this was for me a book that I have seen, but I have never actually owned. It is a book called 1111, The Time Prompt Phenomenon. And she says, for Kurt, I hope you enjoy this. There are stickers inside the cover for you guys, too. She's so awesome. Oh, wow. Holy cow. Sorry, people probably find it so annoying when I walk away from the microphone. Look at all these stickers. Oh, look at, <laughs> look at this. <laughs> That's awesome. Look, here's a sticker. Put that on your car. Oh, shoot. <laughs> okay, let me get semi. And this, there's still a ton of stuff in the oh box. So she got us so much stuff. So Stephanie, we love you. Little vinyl stickers. Oh, look at these. That's These so cool. Awesome. That is so cool. Yeah, this book I've seen, but I've never actually owned. This 1111. Okay. Thank you so much, wow. Stephanie. Wow. Wow. I'm really and excited more, about that there's puzzle, There's more in the box. And there, I've seen what's in the box, oh and there is some gosh. cool stuff in the box for us. She is, wow. She just really, she spoiled us. Rotten. If I would have won the billion dollars in the lottery, I would have sent her maybe five million. Oh, Wow. That's generous. Well, I'm not getting any younger. I don't know what I'm going to do with all that money. <laughs> that's true. You can only <laughs> spend so much money. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Um, Should we? Do you want to do the snack? <sighs> uh, probably the snack first. And, and then, then the, the Or beverage? do you want to open the drink? Or should we just do the snack first? Let's just do the snack first. Because I don't know, based on this snack, if I'm going to need a beverage, if it's okay. going to be spicy or not. Oh, gotcha. If you're going to be offended. Here we go. This taste test is from Coleman, right? Yes. Pico de Gallo. Hmm. I love Pico de Gallo. I don't know if I know what Pico de Gallo is. It's sort of like salsa. Okay. It's like a little oh, less is it the green tomato y. Mm, yeah. Okay. I mean, I think there's different versions of Pico de Gallo. It's, I love Pico de Gallo more than salsa. It's I usually very vegetable-y um, and not as tomato-y. I still think we need one of those giant pe wooden pizza servers that you can like swing over here for me to put something on it and you can bring it back to your side of the table <laughs> now that we're way across from each other at the or table. Or like a... Um, shoot, that was not a picture that I just took. Um, or like a um, Lazy Susan or something. Yeah, Maybe right in the middle of the table. That'd be hilarious. Okay. All right, I'm going to open this. Okay, so it's Beanfields Pico de Gallo. So I'm assuming they're made with it's made with beans. Four grams of protein, four grams of fiber. Because it looks like it looks like a snack that I would see in the healthy section at Festival Foods. Yeah, totally. Um, I like some of them are made with. I bean. need glasses to read the, <laughs> the ingredients. Sniff test. Mm, they smell good. I'm gonna take a small. Oh, they're really like dark. Like very seasoned. They are not what I thought they would look like. Actually, I was expecting like orange, like a Dorito-y looking oh, thing. Okay. That orange color is probably not very natural. No, these are it's probably, probably a little not. more natural. Than wow, that. Okay, these are like super seasoned. Yeah, let me take a picture of that. The the ingredients are. For, what do you think first ingredient is? Beans. Black beans. All right. Black beans, That's navy beans, sign. brown rice. Safflower or sunflower oil, the seasoning blend, and that's it. So, I mean, these are pr actually pretty good. These are kind of healthy for you. 
Dare we say it? Dare we say it? Oops. I'm not worried about this. I don't think this is going to be overly spicy. Okay, hold on. I think it's going to be zesty. I'm really struggling with pictures today. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. It's taking forever. Let's do it. Mmm. That's really good. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not as like... It's not like as crunchy as a regular chip. Yeah, bean... Bean chips tend to have this kind of I texture. I like these. Yeah, Holy like cow. And the, the, um, oh the my seasoning God. is not like in your face. No. It's more subtle than no. I thought it was going to be. The, but the thing is, there's a ton of seasoning on here, but the seasoning isn't overwhelming. Mm-hmm. It just gives it really good flavor. Mm, these are really good. I would totally eat these with like guacamole or... I would eat these just like this. Yeah, they are really good. I'm going to get... What are you going to really give good. this? I'm giving them... Um, a nine. I'm going to give them a nine, too. I was mm. thinking about even a nine and a half because these are, like, so good. Mm-hmm. Yum. Mm. Not spicy at all. No, not at all. Zero heat. But the flavoring is really, really mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. And I like, especially if my teeth are <laughs> starting uh-huh. to hurt, I like chips that are softer. Mm-hmm. You know, like Aaron, I was last time I was over at Aaron's, he had some of those, like, the ruffles that are, like, extra crunch. Oh, I've never had and those. And it's like, oh my God, those are so, so crunchy. I love mm. these. I love these. I do too. Sorry, I, keep, I have to talk more into the microphone. Nine and a half, I'm going to give it. I'm mm. jacking it Ooh, up Ooh, jacking it up a half a point? Uh-huh. All right. Are we going to do those drinks? Yeah. Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yummy. Oh, it's on the left. You got to pull a little. There you go. We have a tiny little refrigerator in here that's super cute. I'm assuming they're different I don't think so. flavors. No? Okay. Make sure that's shut. There you go. Yeah, if they're the same flavor, then we don't need to. Yeah, I have a feeling they're the cups. same flavor. I don't know what it is, though. <laughs> Neither. I'm a little scared. <laughs> <laughs> what if it's beer? Is it going to be spicy? Oh, I wish it was a beer. <laughs> Shaped. I mean, it's a glass bottle. Yep. Wow. Oh, we've had this. Yep. Yep, we've had this before. I'm getting there. It is one of my favorite drinks that we tried. Oh, Moxie. Yep, it is one of my favorite drinks oh, that we tried. Come on. Wow. I, I'm struggling with tissue paper. <laughs> tissue paper. I did not have it in a glass bottle, though. Oh, I yeah, have, they were in cans, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, I've never had Moxie. Who sent us the Moxie? Oh, my gosh. Um, It's something out east, right? Yeah. Are we going to need a bottle opener or do they twist uh, it? If we do, I have one on my... Oh, I have one on my kitchen. Probably I didn't... I, because I asked for somebody to send us Moxie and I don't remember who it was, but I I loved it. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't expect to like it. I think you even left and some now for Jim because yeah. they sent us a six-pack. Now something. I can't even remember exactly what it tastes like, but I just remember I loved it. Yep. Is it a pop top? I think it's a... Pop the top. Ooh, hear the fizz? Yeah, this definitely you want to drink cold, though, so I'm glad we refrigerated it. Give it a toss. Good catch. Thank you. It was a good oh, throw. Yep, that's... And I... Sm- it's like sniffing it, you would not think I would like it because it's got a... What's the word I'm looking for? Spicy? Like, like a, not a... Sp- it smells spicy. Like, it's got like a different... Like, I, I don't want to say anise... But like one of those kinds of spices that I generally don't like. 
And like sniffing this, you wouldn't think that I would like it. Like I could, I'd be like, oh. But I ended up loving yeah, the soda. I, can I haven't had this up since. On the I haven't had it since I ran out of the the one the six pack that a listener sent vanilla. me. Vanilla. I really smell vanilla yeah. too. You ready? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. And I. D- I definitely taste vanilla. There's vanilla in there, but what is the? There's ginger. Is it ginger? ginger? I think ginger. Mm. Yum. Not bad. I love this. For someone who doesn't like soda, that's not bad. Okay, what it, what what that is is this sweet soda is similar to root beer with a bitter aftertaste. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's flavored with gentian root extract. And what that is, why that is familiar to me, is because that's what's in Angostura bitters. Oh, like if you get an old fashioned, yep, that this tastes like the Angostura bitters. bitters. Okay, yeah, I love this. Ten out of ten for me because this is. I'll give it an eight, which is high praise yeah. for someone Chris, who doesn't Chris drink soda. Chris is not soda. a soda fan, but if I could, if I could get this here, I would drink this like all Jim the time. Will finish that for me. Like I love this. Mm-hmm. It's good. Distinctively different, original elixir. It tastes. Established little, in 1884. It tastes a little crisper. 1884. Out of, out of, yeah. It tastes a mm-hmm. little crisper to me out of the bottle than it does out of the can. I think anything does. Yeah. But it's good. It's Thank you so much for sending this. Yeah. Thank you. Like I said, I love This is I the Carpenters, Moxie. right? Yes. Okay. So awesome. Thank you so much, you guys. Good chips. Good soda. Mm-hmm. Nothing gross. Nothing gross. Mm-hmm. Well, that, she was, Fun uh, gifts. Stephanie was laughing about, she said she died laughing listening to that. When I my tongue hit the the, <laughs> the scorpion, <foot. laughs> yeah, because I'm like, what's bumpy in my sucker? And I'm like, oh god, I it's forgot there was a scorpion. It's in a it. scorpion foot. Yep. Did Corey ever finish his? Yeah, I oh. was with him when he finished it. What was his review? He like said he it was ate good. The scorpion piece. I think he ate the scorpion wow. piece because I was with him. That's guts. Corey, it's... if you think if you listen to this, let us know. Yeah, leave a review on Facebook. Said, yeah. Leave a review. Send send me a, a review so I can read it in the next episode. But I think I was with Corey when he when he ate the scorpion. So if there's nothing else, I think on to the main story. Is there anything else? I don't think so. I think we're good. I think so. Uh this this one kind of came across by synchronicity too, because I just happened to see or come across articles that talked about John Keel. And I've known about Keel for a while and I was mm-hmm. really fascinated with him. And I think most people are familiar with him from the Mothman prophecies. Yeah. And the thing is, I didn't want to do this. This episode again is a it's it's a beefy episode. This one's kind of dense. So you're going to have to kind of kind of stick. Yeah. Like kind of (laughs) stick with it. I feel like it can be kind of dense because I realized the more that I read or listen to about keel that i very much my beliefs in the paranormal the theories of the paranormal kind of follows his okay and when i was researching him it turns out that and this person's name pops up all the time in ufo stories and ufo research is jacques valet and he kind of has the same theories as him okay so i i struggled with putting jacques valet stuff in here because he he released a paper in 1990 that I really like and I feel like is important when it comes to the theory that Keel proposed. And it was like, I thought about doing it as a, a, a mini mystery. Mm-hmm. I thought about doing Jacques Vallée as a whole separate episode, but I decided just to lump the two of them together. Okay. So this is going to kind of be a lot and it's going to be a little dense, but I think this is just really, really fascinating. I really do. So here we go. 
Strap yourselves in. Strap yourselves in. This one's beefy. From the a lot of this first part comes from the JohnKeel.com website and Wikipedia. John Alva Keel was born Alva John Keel, and his last name was spelled K E K I E H L E, and he changed it to K E E L okay. to make it easier. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he was born Alva John Keel, changed his name to John Alva Keel, and he was born March twenty fifth, nineteen thirty, in Hornell, New York. His dad was a band leader, and his mother was described as a, quote, lively, pretty girl with a strong sense of humor. His parents got divorced, after which John was raised by his grandparents. When he was a kid, he was fascinated with magic, and when he was 12, he got his first ever story published in a magician's magazine. As a child, he read insatiably. He remembered himself being a, quote, reading machine, especially anything about magic, humor, science, travel, or aviation. By the time he was 14 years old, he was determined to be a writer. He wrote a column called Scraping the Keel for the Perry Herald, and he published his own science fiction magazine called The Lunarite, and he was routinely sending out submissions to magazines at the wow. age of 14. So he was, a, he was a writer. He left school at the age of 16 after taking all the science courses. So he didn't care about anything else. He just mm-hmm. wanted the science courses. In 1947, he hitchhiked to Manhattan, or more specifically to Greenwich Village. He became associate editor of the quarterly magazine Poets of America and editor of the weekly newspaper Limelight. At this time, he was also writing for comic books, contributing poetry to various magazines, and turning out scripts for the early TV station WABD. He also wrote scripts for radio shows, including Grand Central Station and First Nighter. So this guy's like busy, like mm-hmm. doing all this stuff. When he was 18, he had a strange but classic illumination experience in his furnished room off Times Square. He remembers waking up and the room being, quote, filled with an indescribable light, a pinkish glow, and his mind flooded with a torrent of information. And I've actually come across that quite a bit where people experience this, where they wake up in the middle of the night and there's like a pillar-like glow. Not like a figure, not like a humanoid figure, but Mm -hmm. like a pillar of light. And I've come across that quite a bit, and I have no idea what that is. In 1951, he was drafted. He spent his military years in Frankfurt, working mostly for the American Forces Network. Some of his programming ideas, which included a remote broadcast from the Great Pyramid and another from Frankenstein's castle, earned him a great deal of publicity. And I never knew Frankenstein had a castle. No. I knew Dracula had a castle, yeah. but Frankenstein <laughs> had a castle. And he also claimed that while he was in the army, he was trained in psychological warfare as a propaganda writer. In 1954, he was restless and determined to see more of the world. He spent the next year wandering throughout the Middle East, supporting himself by sending back stories and articles to his agent, who then placed them in men's adventure magazines. In Singapore, he was deported as being a, quote, adventurer. And I don't know what that means. Deported? He was deported as being an adventurer. Okay. I don't know what that means. And moved to Barcelona, where he turned his experiences into a book called Jadu. Then the book described his time in Egypt and India, investigating the Indian rope trick and the legendary Yeti. And the Indian rope trick is like a fascinating story, too. That might be one for a, a side sessions, actually. Okay. Uh, but he was like obsessed with figuring out the Indian rope trick. And you know where that, where you're outside and the Indian starts playing like the music on his flute, like a, you know, like the, the cobra comes out of the basket. Oh, yeah. But instead, a, a rope comes out and goes towards the sky and then he climbs the rope. 
but uh this is a thing yeah oh yeah the indian rope trick is a big thing wow okay yeah and uh he was like obsessed with figuring out how how they did this so he went there and found out how they did it and stuff and but that's going to be one for i think for our side sessions but okay. it's a fascinating story hmm. like it sounds stupid but like the indian rope trick has like a really interesting like history behind it when his book called Jadoo, J-A-D-O-O, was published in 1957, he moved back to New York and promoted it by performing with cobras in the window of the Midtown Aquarium in Times Square and with many TV and radio appearances. He suffered a bit of writer's block after this and turned to editing the magazine Echo. Funk and Wagnalls also hired him as a science and geography editor. Funk and Wagnalls? Funk and Wagnalls. Sure. They, they did the Funk and Wagnalls dictionary, wasn't it? I have no idea. Yeah, Funk and Wagnalls was like big. Okay. I think it was either a dictionary or encyclopedia. Okay. In the 60s, he worked a great deal in television. He was the head writer for the game show called Play Your Hunch, and he turned out many scripts for shows such as Mac and Meyer for Hire, the Chuck McCann Show, the Clay Cole Show, and the animated series Snooper Scoop. Never heard that. <laughs> Sounds fun. He also wrote a couple of novels under his preferred pseudonym, Harry Gibbs. In 1966, he produced the spy and superhero spoof novel called, quote, The Fickle Finger of Fate. In 1966, Playboy magazine commissioned him to write an article on UFOs. His final piece was rejected, that assignment ultimately being turned over to J. Allen Hynek, stole the bet sphere, supposedly. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, because remember, like, J. Allen Hynek pops up all the time lately in our episodes, too, mm. which is crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I might have to end up doing a whole episode on J. Allen Hynek because he's a fascinating guy too. So that assignment ended up being turned over to J. Allen Hynek and it was published in the December 1967 issue. But by that time, Keel had become hooked on the subject of UFOs and traveled around the country interviewing witnesses and writing dozens of articles. Influenced by writers such as Charles Fort, he began contributing articles to Flying Saucer Review and took up investigating UFOs and assorted Fort Fortnea. Fortnea is like what Charles Fort called stuff that happens that you can't understand. Okay. Like high strangeness. It, yeah. Like assorted Fortnea as a full-time pursuit. Keel analyzed what he called windows or waves or flaps, which is where a bunch of weird stuff happens in a localized area in a small amount of time. Okay. Yeah, we still talk about UFO flaps or UFO mm -hmm. windows. He concluded that a disproportionate number of these occurred on Wednesdays and Saturdays. In 1966, he made repeated visits to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, then the site of a particularly active monster and UFO flap. The result was one of his most popular books, which was, of course, The Mothman Prophecies. Along the way, he also put out a lively newsletter called Anomaly. He wrote a regular column for Saga, which I believe was like a men's adventure magazine, and he published several classic books on Fortinea. In 1967, uh, Keel popularized a term that we still use today, and this, this showed up in his Mothman book. And what, what do you think the term is that he popularized that we still use today, especially with UFO sightings and people who come and see you after UFO sightings? Shadowy people who come see you after UFO sightings. Oh, Men in Black? Yes, he okay. popularized the term Men in Black in the... In an article for the men's magazine Saga that was called, quote, UFO Agents of Terror. A member of the Screenwriters Guild, Keel reportedly wrote scripts for the TV shows Get Smart, Mac and Meyer for Hire, The Monkees, and Lost in Space. Hmm. 
The monkeys, huh? I love the monkeys. <laughs> hey, hey. He was a technical advisor to the Library of Congress and special consultant to the Office of Scientific Research and Bureau of Radiology before becoming a, a consultant to the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, for whom he produced a prototype for a magazine called You. He also fulfilled a boyhood dream by earning his pilot's license. Wow. Just wait till He's we get busy just dude. wait till we wait till we get to Jacques Vallée. It's wow. crazy how much these guys do. Like it makes me question. I'm just excited my... <laughs> when I get some laundry done. <laughs> I know, <laughs> and, but like Jacques Vallée, it's like uh, we'll get to him. But it's like, oh my god, it's like I I haven't even gone grocery I've shopping. Wasted, yet. I've wasted my life. <laughs> right? You know, I don't have that drive. I guess in the 1980s, Keel attempted a number of plays and novels, none of which made it to the stage or screen. He devoted his time to various mail-order projects and revived the dormant New York Fortean Society, and he contributed a regular column to Fate magazine called, quote, Beyond the Known. In his later years, he was slowed down considerably by diabetes and its complications. He had some lean times, particularly when cataracts and the resulting eye surgery made writing difficult. Mm. His luck changed, however, when the Mothman Prophecies was made into a movie in 2002. He was particularly delighted at being portrayed by Richard Gere, who he referred who he referred to as quote a John Keel lookalike. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not really. Uh, the publicity sparked several new editions of his book, including numerous foreign editions. He bought himself a car, which he called the Mothmobile, and often disappeared nice. on solo road trips. Love it. With age, his health declined, and he spent several years in and out of hospitals and nursing homes. His friends pitching in to keep him going. He died July 3rd, 2009 at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. So that's kind of like his life. Yeah. Uh, the thing that really set it all off was Mothman Prophecies. Yeah. Because that... What that he's well like, known yeah. for. And I actually checked the book out from the library uh, last weekend, and I've been reading it this whole week, you know, get, preparing for this. He's a really good writer, but a lot of people accuse him of being a better writer than he is a researcher. Oh. You know? Okay. Maybe some embellishments? Yeah. Okay. After his death, columnist Menachem Kaiser wrote in the July 6, 2009 issue of The New Yorker, he wrote, quote, John Keel, the legendary ufologist and author of the Mothman prophecies, died Friday at the age of 79. The news reminds me of a chance encounter I had with Keel a couple of years ago during a visit to a friend and that I made to an old age home on the Upper West Side, part of a program that sends chirpy youngsters to drop in on Jewish seniors. For someone who's desperately lonely, a 10-minute visit can make a world of difference, which is true. Mm -hmm, absolutely. On that day, there was no Mrs. Goldberg inside the room we'd been sent to. We asked the room's lone occupant, a Mr. John Keel, where we could find her. He told us that she had passed away, and he invited us in. We listened as Keel told us his life story, completely absorbed. We thought that he might be delusional or at least a highly entertaining liar. <laughs> he told us about UFO sightings and experiences with a mythical creature from West Virginia called the Mothman. He said that he wrote a book about the Mothman. We figured it must have been a little self-published book and later negotiated to get Richard Gere to play him in a movie. So they just assumed that he was <laughs> just either Office nuts rocker, or lying. Yeah. Keel then spent 40 minutes telling us about a trip to India where he investigated the magic of the Indians. I think Keel knew that we didn't really believe him, but he didn't seem to care. Everything he said was presented as a lesson. I think at one point he even called us whippersnappers. <laughs> oh, I haven't heard that term <laughs> in a while. Whippersnapper. He lectured us on the nature of belief, on the variances of truth, and on the dangers of extreme skepticism, and on his aversion to love. 
When we finally had to leave, nearly two hours later, we were standing in the doorway. Keel called over to us, and we went over to him, and he just said the words, One day you'll know, and then he bid us farewell. Was he referring to his fame that we discovered later that afternoon online, or was he talking about the truth of his theories or something else entirely? We'll never know. Hmm. Interesting mm-hmm. chance encounter. I know. I would have loved to have met John oh, Keel. He's like a fascinating guy. The stories would be just yeah. amazing. Yep. This next section comes from um, the johnkeel.com website, which is run by a friend of his named Doug Skinner that actually knew him and is trying to keep him out there, like to have a presence online. Mm-hmm. So he start, at the site, he introduces himself saying, welcome to the John Keel site. I'm Doug Skinner, a friend of John's for many years. I've started this site to give his fans a place to find a reasonably accurate biography and bibliography and semi-regular postings on his life and work. The biography and bibliography are still in progress. I'll keep adding to them as the site grows. Meanwhile, check back, comment, suggest, complain, and steer clear of those ultra-terrestrials. Mm-hmm. And ultra-terrestrials is a word that we'll get to. And on the site, it says, uh, in the biography section, it says, quote, Alva John Keel is a fine name, but obviously not one snappy enough for an ambitious young writer. John started experimenting with pseudonyms early and often. The usual was the simplified spelling, John Keel, K-E-E-L, and he later added the middle letter A to distinguish himself from another John Keel, or so he said. It made sense, but I never was able to find out who this other John Keel was. There were lots of other pseudonyms. A few follow, but I'm sure that there were more that we haven't discovered yet. Mm, So here are some of the names that he wrote under. Randolph Halsey Quince, Stonehead McGuire, (laughs) Thornton M. Vasseltarp, (laughs) <laughs> Smedley, Vasseltarp. Smedley okay. Lipschitz. Come on. Dr. Thaddeus L. Farnbogle and Darwin Fudwapple DDS. Oh, this doesn't get better than this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're going to make up a name, yeah. go for By the By all gold. accounts, he was like a funny guy. Like he he had a really, like I've heard I li- when some of the podcasts I listened to had clips of him talking at conferences and mm. stuff. And he's like, a he is a funny like really endearing, funny guy. Like okay. he's a guy that you charismatic. Would, yeah, like a charismatic, just funny guy. Hmm. So this next one is long, but this gets to the gist of what Keel kind of believed in. Okay. So buckle yourself in. This comes from the Mothman Wiki, uh, November 2017 article. It's called "Quote Into the Mind of John Keel, Episode One: Categories." You can freely entertain any idea without accepting it. You can contemplate absurd notions while still remaining grounded, and it can be of value to think over these ideas. That is, in a sense, what fiction is, hypothetical thinking without buying into it as true. John Keel was an interesting person with fascinating ideas and perspectives. You don't have to agree with him to be entertained by the ideas he put forth. John Keel is the author of the Mothman Prophecies, as well as other books such as The Eighth Tower and The Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings. In these books, he would cover strange stories that people had reported and tell of his experiences looking into them. He embraced the absurdity of it all instead of shying away from it. His commentary was often humorous and thought-provoking. Keel puzzled over many of the same questions that people still puzzle over today and seek to understand. So an effort to comprehend his unique perspectives allow us to journey into the mind of John Keel. There are categories of study when it comes to the weird things that people report to see. 
among these fields, there are different prevailing conclusions. Ufology is the study of unidentified flying objects, and the prevailing conclusion among them seems to be the ET hypothesis, which states that beings from other planets are the explanation. When it comes to monsters, there's cryptozoology, which is known as the study of unknown animals. Their leading explanation for monster reports is that these things are undiscovered animals from our own biology, which is, mm-hmm. of course, Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Urban legends and folklore can also be a study of strange reports, but tends to be more of a secular passing down of stories, often with the understanding that they are very unlikely to be true. And here's where you like Santa Claus. Sure. Tooth fairy. Yeah, okay. Demons, angels, and spirits have fields such as demonology as well as paranormal investigators who focus on hauntings. A leading interpretation among them is that these things are dead people or beings from the afterlife. John Keel was a Fortean. He was inspired by the work of Charles Fort, who collected strange reports from newspapers. Instead of focusing on one thing in particular, Fort assembled all kinds of reports of anomalous phenomenon. John Keel later did much the same in a newsletter he edited called Anomaly. Fortean was the word which Keel most often used to describe himself. Every time you say Fortean, I think of the Waylands. Tobias and Emily. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that's their... <laughs> Singular Fortean. Yep. 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 So Fortean was the word which Keel used most often to describe himself. A Fortean can study UFOs, monsters, demons, ghosts, angels, literally anything strange. And this is basically how John Keel studied. And I feel like that's kind of how we are. Like, we love ghosts and the sure, paranormal, sure, sure. obviously, but yeah. we love UFOs. We love, oh, yeah. we love Bigfoot. It all. We love anything weird. Yeah. Even, even like the missing, four, missing 411 stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So basically, I think we are Fortean in that we, we love anything that's just weird. Mm-hmm. You know, even some of these missing people that have like the weird circumstances behind it. And that's basically how Keel studied. He liked anything weird. Charles Fort once said, quote, One measures a circle beginning anywhere. And John Keel seems to have really taken that to heart. He felt that it was necessary to study the entirety of these strange reports beginning wherever you want, but measuring the entirety of these various fields of study. In 1966, John Keel first began studying reports of UFOs in hopes of understanding what was going on. He began taking it a step further by doing investigative journalism and traveling around the country interviewing people who claimed to have seen strange lights in the sky. He was attempting to write an article on the subject, but eventually his efforts grew into an entire book titled Operation Trojan Horse, which was released in 1970. He made the conscious effort not to have preconceived notions going into it. He did not begin with a foregone conclusion, but instead tried to remain objective and figure out why people were reporting such things. Keel's personal motto that he lived by, and this is important because if, if there was like a, uh, I can't remember her name off the top. She's actually like a paranormal, uh, like from, she's from Green Bay. She's from the Wisconsin area. Hmm. Uh, I read Zelia. I read a bunch, or listened to a bunch of podcasts that she was interviewed on. She's, I think, 25 years old, but she's very into this stuff. Okay. Uh, and, and her and another guy just jokingly started a, like a church of... John Keel. Oh. And they said that the number one commandment is the personal motto that he lived by, and that is, quote, belief is the enemy. And mm. that is a very important... That's an interesting It idea. is, but it's mm-hmm. very... That is like the number one commandment of John Keel is belief is the enemy. Keel was extremely against beliefs and adjusted his way of doing things to avoid forming them. This contributed to him expanding his study not from just not UFOs, but to any and all types of strangeness. He was quoted as saying, quote, 
Separating and studying any single element is not only a waste of time, but also will automatically lead to the development of a belief. If there was a John Keel method of, of investigating something, it would probably be something along the lines of this. Investigate any and all anomalous reports to the best of your ability, but never form belief. Keel began studying reports of monsters, spirits, angels, demons, and other anomalies along with UFOs. He began to notice commonality and universal trends among all of these. One similarity in the narrative of these reports that he noticed was that all of these beings seemed to mess with electricity. People would report that their radios and TVs would blank out or they would have strange interference during their sightings of anything from monsters to UFOs. Another similarity was that these beings are often reported to glow or have glowing attributes. Over time, he began to think that it wasn't different phenomenons he was dealing with, but one singular phenomenon. Keel said, quote, All of these manifestations clearly share a common source or cause. When you think about the Mothman, which is the subject of Keel's most popular and well-known book, you'll notice that this legend is pretty much a perfect example of what Keel is talking about. The Mothman legend of West Virginia features UFOs, men in black, poltergeist activity in the homes of the witnesses, and of course, a monster. All these things are reported in the same small town over a span of time. It illustrates what he's saying about these things all seeming to be connected. Uh, you get what he's saying here? Like, this is this yeah. is what I, this is what I mm-hmm. believe. I think that... They're not all separate from each other. They're not all separate from each other. I think that a lot of people would separate Bigfoot from ghosts mm-hmm. or UFOs. I don't think that's necessarily true. Keel also incorporates world mythology as something that is part of the phenomenon. He says that these things, quote, have been present since the dawn of man, and that when you review the ancient references, you are obliged to conclude that the presence of these objects and beings is a normal condition for this planet. His basic idea is that these things have always been interacting with mankind and the ancient cultures, but the ancient cultures simply interpreted it in a different way. He compares ancient myth with contemporary reports of strange things. He was basically stating that different cultures have different names for what is perhaps the same exact thing. He goes on to say, quote, They have always been here. Perhaps they were here long before we started bashing each other over the head with clubs. If so, they will undoubtedly still be here long after we have incinerated our cities, polluted all the waters, and rendered the very atmosphere unbreathable. Certain religious beings and imagery are also included in Keel's perspective as part of the phenomenon. He considered the religious witnesses to simply be interpreting their strange encounters in the way that they understood the world. Religion and world mythology both usually consist of stories from various cultures of a god, gods, or supernatural beings. Keel seems to consider certain aspects of these stories to be similar to modern reports. He referred to Earth as, quote, the Disneyland of the gods in one of his book titles. He liked to point out the parallels between religious stories or ancient mythology and UFO or monster reports as if to say it's nothing new. So Keel had united all these forms and study in his mind. He threw away the various interruptions given by their fields and allowed the categories to melt away into a single solitary phenomenon. Obviously, the other people who studied these things didn't appreciate his method. They preferred to specialize their efforts and would much rather go along with the prevailing model of their chosen study field. Mm -hmm. Just like if you're a a hardcore ghost hunter, you're going to disagree with this. Totally, yeah. Because you yeah. already have preconceived yeah, you Yeah, you go into it with preconceived notions. Mm-hmm. Also, the difference in opinion among these varying groups seemed much too wide a gap to bridge. Doing so, however, would have more than tripled the sample size of reports, making it at least harder to ignore. 
Collaborating may have been more fruitful, but the study of the unknown was just too fragmented to be mended into a collaborative effort. And I agree with that. It's still an issue today. It is still an issue Tobias today. Tobias just posted about this. Yeah. About how the paranormal community isn't what the it community should be. that it the, should the, be. No, it, it's not. And it, it was just weird that he said that because like the day before I was thinking that I'm like, you know, I'm not bad mouthing anybody because it is what it is. But I feel like a lot of the Wisconsin bigger name paranormal people i feel like it's kind of like a little click like mm-hmm. it's it's very clubbish yes like either you're one of us or you're not and it's just, it was just weird to me that i read that post the day after i was thinking that so yeah. i mean I, I get that too i think that it's um it can be very territorial too so like if a big name group regularly investigates a location and someone contradicts something they have said about that location, yeah. they will drag your name through the mud. Yeah, like, but a lot of people want to consider themselves to be, I am the quote unquote par- experts. I am the expert on paranormal stuff in the Green Bay area. Which is not even a thing. No, it's not. But you know how it is. Oh, because totally. I, th- I feel like a lot of people have this... It's territorial. I feel like they have this misconception that there's money to be made in this. Only if you get a TV show. And, th- and that's the thing. You know, and even then, those people still have regular jobs. I hate to break it to like you. when I think when I and I'm not saying that he's one of the bad guys, but when I think of like somebody in this area like that, it's like Chad Lewis. But Chad Lewis is like the Wisconsin like paranormal. He like he's wrote, written the books about like haunted areas in Wisconsin, and he goes around a lot to conventions and he does lectures mm-hmm. and he comes to the Manitowoc Public Library and talks. But I feel like that's about the highest level of any kind of quote-unquote fame you can get yeah unless or like you get a Tobias, tv show writing books and yeah. he does appearances yeah. and lectures and stuff too yeah but, but yeah it's, TV it's, it's show like one of the, it's like one of those things where like tobias puts these books out and i can see other people who consider themselves the front runners of the paranormal movement in the state being threatened by that mm-hmm. jealous you know, I, I don't necessarily know who I think these people are, but it just it 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 I'm not to part me, of the community enough to know that. That's what I I said in my comment to uh Tobias. I said that you and I are just kind of you know, you and I love this stuff, but we don't get involved with the community no, when it comes to this stuff. Like we love running our little podcast. <laughs> that's really We also don't actively investigate anymore. We and don't. Maybe that's a part of we it. We don't, but we also have no desire to go to conventions and to have book signings and meet and greets and stuff. Yeah. You know, I think that would make no. both of us break out in a cold Ugh. sweat. Wouldn't sleep for days. You know? Yeah. But it is, and I think it's like anything. I think it's like when TAPS, when Ghost Hunters was on the air, everybody wanted to be in a ghost hunting group because they wanted the level of fame. And then there was all this infighting about what group was better, what group was yeah. better. And it's true. It's just, I feel like, like you said, this is too fragmented to ever people come together this goop this ufo is ufo hunter group this is bigfoot hunting group this mm-hmm. ghost hunting group come together and discuss the commonalities mm-hmm. and whether this is one phenomenon or whether it is three separate phenomena. Right. you know that was a good aside i completely lost where i was in here <laughs> uh, bah, 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 bah. he thought that these entities bah, bah, bah. where was i here okay that's where we ended it was just too fragmented to be mended into a collaborative effort Keel became an outcast among outcasts, which is true. If you're if you're in the par- back then, especially now, it's kind of cool to be in the paranormal sure. field. But back yep. then, you were, were an outcast. Already an outcast. And if you were somebody that the rest of the community didn't agree with, you were the outcasts of outcasts. Mm-hmm. You know, so he was way on the outside. 
Keel became an outcast among outcasts, but perhaps it made him all the more unique and visionary in his thinking. He didn't subscribe to any of the established interpretations of what the phenomenon is and where these manifestations come from, and so instead he had his own personal conclusions. He thought that these entities, ranging from UFOs, monsters, demons, angels, spirits, religious beings, ghosts, etc., were all simply manifestations of this phenomenon. Even though they have visual variety and differences, he thought of them as the same type of thing, a manifestation. He determined through his own reasoning that these manifested beings seemed to be electromagnetic in origin because of how they messed with electricity and because of the glowing attributes, as well as how they interacted with certain metals and so on. He basically thought that cultures throughout history had interacted with them, each interpreting them differently and calling them different things. So it wouldn't really matter what you've called them. Every culture on the planet seems to have this universal idea of mysterious beings or non-humans from somewhere else. Each culture has its own interpretation. An example of this line of thinking is that his original title for the Mothman prophecies was called, quote, the year of the Garuda. He didn't consider these things to be separate, but basically the same, just different cultural interpretations. So when it comes to Keel's idea on what to call this, he created an umbrella term to summarize all these beings under. He coined the term ultra-terrestrial. Keel was very into radiology and even, has a, even had a job as a radiology consultant at one point. Ultraviolet rays exist outside of our visible color spectrum. Perhaps this is why he chose his name. For these beings, he considers, <laughs> he considers these beings to just be out of reach. Keel once said, quote, once you have established a belief, the phenomenon adjusts its manifestations to support that belief and thereby escalate it. And that's like mm-hmm. his basic theory. And you and I have talked about that at several points. You know, it's like, uh, say, Slenderman, where it, it started as a creepypasta mm-hmm. and then people were, were reporting actually seeing this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's kind of what Keel is saying, that (laughs) this idea of ultra terrestrials that exist outside of our reality are the ones that manifest whatever, you know, it could be like just to mess with us. But the more we believe in something, the more they manifest that something to actually happen. Mm -hmm. We've talked about tulpas. We've talked about like wishing something into existence or talking about believing something into existence, basically. John Keel described common characteristics of these manifestations. He said that they were trickster beings or cosmic pranksters playing mischievous games with mankind since its dawn. Keel described Earth as their version of Disneyland, implying that they tricked us and are playing their games for pure entertainment. Although he also thought that sometimes they went too far in their jokes and games by engaging in secondhand harm to the people who they encountered, as well as having a morbid dark sense of humor or irony. He noted how human-centric the manifestations seemed to be. At first he thought, why would spacemen follow state roads, and why would dead people come back from beyond, from beyond the grave just to knock a book off a shelf? <laughs> Most people would follow these questions up by stating that the reports are therefore false. John Keel, however, found that these strange activities made more sense as a narrative if they were done instead by tricksters that are messing with us. Keel posited these characteristics to be more accurate to the reports as to what, and to what he has experienced personally. He found his ultra-terrestrial idea to be a much better description of the phenomenon. So, from where does Keel think that these ultra-terrestrials arrive? What does he think the common origin is? Keel hypothesized that these beings come from another dimension, which is a spectrum of energy that he called the super-spectrum. In his book, The Eighth Tower, he stated, quote, 
This super spectrum is the source of all paranormal manifestations. It is extra-dimensional, meaning that it exists outside our own space-time continuum, yet influences everything within our reality. Hmm. What do you think so far? Are you buying this? I mean, I get it. I think yeah. it's an interesting theory. Any theory involving visitation of this kind would require an entry point. Keel described areas of high strangeness that he called window areas. These are the places where he thought that the ultra-terrestrials would enter our world from the superspectrum. He said that the, quote, inhabitants of the other world climb through the curtain in the area we call windows. That, of course, includes any kind of monster, spirit, or UFO. Keel wrote, quote, these creatures and strange events tend to recur in the same areas year after year, even century after century. The UFO field seems to have been lacking this kind of point to explain why certain areas have more UFO reports than others. It's very similar to the concept of a haunted area, except Keel is viewing it as a form of entryway for all sorts of weird entities. Cryptozoology often theorizes about reclusive animals inhabiting or hiding out in certain zones for a variety of biological reasons. Keel commented on this by stating, quote, The hideout theory is untenable. Posses, experienced hunters, and even helicopters have searched for these creatures immediately after some of these events and have failed to find any trace of a hiding place. So where did they go? He continues, quote, We have to stretch our minds a bit and extend our imaginations into the paranormal. The sudden appearances and disappearances of these wild, unknown creatures all over the world, even in densely populated areas, suggest that they have some means of transportation. Keel thought that manifestations could possibly enter and exit our world from hypothetical doors or passageways in these places. He considered these weird zones to be part of the natural environment. He once again implied that this might be related to electromagnetic energy and that it could be detectable by the human perception of fear. So to summarize, it seems that in Keel's personal view, UFOs and the associated entities are not aliens from another planet. Spirits, demons, and angels are not dead people or beings from an afterlife. Monsters are not undiscovered animals from our, bi our biology. He classified all these things in a different way than most researchers of the time. He seems to have considered all of them to be ultra-terrestrials from the super-spectrum, meaning manifested beings or entities coming from a dimension outside of our own. This seems to be how Keel categorized the subject matter of these strange reports. He was definitely a big picture sort of guy. He stated, quote, It is not my intention to attack any frame of reference. Rather, I have tried to demonstrate how all of these things blend together into a larger whole. He had a very unique perspective, to say the least, which is why even to this day we still try to ponder some of his ideas. Some people do it for a form of understanding, and some people do it for simple escapism or entertainment. Whatever your reason for the interest might be, you can always pick up a book and journey into the mind of John Keel. Hmm. So that's the long article, but that's basically his his theories in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, he believes that these ultra terrestrials or whatever, the more that we believe in something or whatever is whatever is like in the collective consciousness at that time, you're going to see more of it. And that's what the black eyed kids are, because people were creeped out by the stories of black eyed kids. So then there would be more visitations and stories about black eyed kids. That's what the hat man would be. People hear about the hat man and the more people that hear about it, the more it gets manifested hmm. into existing by these creatures. Well, and by people who actually believe like the slender man thing. Yeah. We know that that wasn't real. Somebody made it up, but a lot of people believed that it was real. And so in his mind, that's what caused it to start manifesting and people to start having Slenderman experiences, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, Keel said, quote, I abandoned the extraterrestrial hypothesis in 1967 when my own field investigations disclosed an astonishing overlap between psychic phenomena and UFOs. The objects and apparitions do not necessarily originate on another planet and may not even exist as permanent constructions of matter. It is more likely that what we see is what we want to see, and we interpret such visions according to our contemporary beliefs. In his 1970 book, UFO's Operation Trojan Horse, Keel argued that a non-human or spiritual intelligence source has staged whole events over a long period of time in order to propagate and reinforce certain wrong belief systems. For example, monsters, ghosts, and demons, the fairy faith in Middle Europe, vampire legends, mystery airships in 1897, mysterious airplanes in the 1930s, mystery helicopters, anomalous creature sightings, poltergeist phenomena, balls of light, and UFOs. Keel conjectured that ultimately all of these are a cover for the real phenomenon. Keel used the term ultra-terrestrials to describe UFO occupants he believed to be non-human entities capable of taking on whatever form they want. So yeah, like I said, this is kind of a dense episode. Yeah, but it's a lot. But this is kind of what I believe. I yeah, mentioned you, that on here that, on this. that yeah. like I think Bigfoot is interdimensional. Is interdimensional mm-hmm. is something that can exist for a little while and then it's gone. And that's mm-hmm. the only thing that makes sense to me. That's the like you know like I I poo poo the Bigfoot thing, but so mm-hmm. many people see things. Some of these stories that I read, it's like something is there, mm-hmm. and it's like why can we They're not find this? Why something. are there no traces of this thing? Because it simply pops in and then pops out. And I would argue there are traces though. Like what? Um, I mean, besides the footprints and stuff. Well, that's traces. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like structures or um, like you'll people will find intricate kitly put together beds in the woods that no known yeah. animal yeah that's is, true i mean there's stuff like that i i wouldn't say there's absolutely but where no are the traits. bodies like where is the physical actual physical evidence of a bigfoot i guess I, I i feel like we humans don't leave bodies just laying around we we take care of our dead i mean of course they're... you find human remains places but those are people who don't care about you know, but, human then that, life. but then that would require enough big feet or big foots to be around to bury. Just one. Well, there's a theory though that they they have family units. You know. Yeah. I guess I I, I lean away from interdimensional. I think that's too fantastical to me. It's an undiscovered, unidentified. I don't. I mean, I get, I get what he's saying that all of this stuff is related. Like I, I like the theory. I don't know that I believe it though. Yeah, like I don't I, know. That I, I tend I can to believe it, it more than I disbelieve it because. But on the other hand, I realize that it's just taking an easy way out, saying, "Oh, it's all the same thing." Kind of, you know, yeah. which it, which I get, mm-hmm. you know, and is the same thing that's making these Bigfoot appear. The same thing that we're catching on EVPs when we do an investigation, you right? Know, just something messing with us. I don't know. I mean, I think this is. I, it's just a really interesting theory. Yeah. Oh, totally. It is. Keel came to the belief that ufology, tales about fairies, gnomes, and elves, seances, ghosts, etc., etc., were all mysterious phenomena that recognized their origin in the same unknown reality that manifested itself to men by using from time to time extremely variable and chameleonic staging and disguises. Keel formulated his famous theory of Trojan horses. According to this theory, UFOs and other phenomena belong to the dimension of mystery, and these are nothing more than disguises. Hmm. 
To put it another way, Keel argued that this unknown reality today disguised itself as extraterrestrials because we were in the space age, while in the Middle Ages, this unknown reality took the form of fairies, gnomes, and elves because at that historical period, this disguise was very credible, mm-hmm. which I get. That makes sense. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Even the site, I have no idea why this was even on the site, but it's Ridgecrest Herbals. I think I don't know what herbals. I don't know if it's like a a pot thing. Or it could just be flowers or something. Yeah. But they had this article, which I thought really some kind of summed this up good. Starts with a quote by Nikola Tesla that says, quote, if you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Article says in physics, a field is an area under the influence of a force such as gravity or electromagnetism. A field theory is a physical theory that employs fields in the physical sense. The laws of nature that affect large objects like planets, people, or pool walls don't apply to smaller objects like atoms, molecules, or subatomic subatomic particles. It appears that the universe operates on two totally separate sets of laws unless there is a force that unites everything that we haven't discovered yet. Einstein spent the latter years looking for this theoretical explanation of this undocumented force known as the unified field theory. What if the world of the supernatural could also be tied together with one unified theory? American author and investigator John Keel proposed just such a theory. Best known for his book, The Mothman Prophecies, Keel has another book entitled The Eighth Tower. He postulates that there is one singular intelligent force behind all religious, occult, paranormal, and UFO phenomenon. He spent a large part of his lifetime interviewing witnesses of a myriad of paranormal events and circumstances. He concluded that there must be a force or intelligence that coalesces and materializes its energies just outside the boundaries of our known electromagnetic spectrum, a spectrum that Keel coined the super spectrum. While this theory may sound pretty nuts, remember that everything in our world that is seen, heard, or felt is done through frequencies, waves, or vibrations. We can only sense a small fraction. We can only hear a small portion of the available sound waves measured in a unit of frequency known as hertz. Which is why we can't hear this tone when we blow into a dog whistle. Humans can also only see a small fraction of visible light on the spectrum. At the same time, bees, for example, can actually detect ultraviolet light, which helps them to find nectar and flowers. Could all of this weirdness that we experience exist in a field just outside of humans' normal biological perception? And are some people better able to pick on pick up on it than others? So, and I, I get that. Like, yeah. just, like everything we are, everything comes down to energy, vibration, yeah. frequency. Totally. So we do only see a small portion of what's around us. We only hear a small portion of what's actually which is around kind of freaky us. Which is freaky, about. but that's what this whatever if these ultra terrestrials exist, they could just be on a different frequency than yeah. us. And then people who have quote unquote psychic abilities are on that same vibration or yeah. able to pick up on those vibrations or frequencies. Yep. How long are we going to? Hour and 15, 16. Oh, God. Okay. I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff because a lot of the stuff that I have just goes on more about this, about the ideas of the ultra terrestrials okay. and stuff like that. Yeah. We got the gist. I feel like we yeah. know the concept Yeah. Now. I had a couple of interviews with like people who are like quote unquote experts on him, uh, which he would not like because he, I was going to put it, I was going to use it as the teaser actually. His business card said John Keel not an expert on anything you know like he was very i love that yeah he was very how can you be an expert on something that nobody can prove exists yeah like definitively he he didn't he didn't he he was a weird mixture where he was very ego driven but he was also very 
he didn't want to be put on a pedestal at the same time. Yeah. He didn't want humble somehow at the same you know time. because like the more that you are into what he's theorizing the more you are building a belief which is what he was against in the first place because he says the belief itself is what manifests everything to happen i'm okay with the term researcher i'm okay with the term enthusiast investigator i don't like yeah, the term no, expert nobody no, should be using that i love term. his business card that says not an expert yeah, in anything yeah so now i'm going to jump into jacques valet to okay. kind of because this kind of goes along the same lines and i want to talk about his paper he wrote 1990 because i feel that just adds a lot to this this guy makes me question my whole life like (laughs) how i how i pissed how you spent your time jacques valet was born in pontios france in 1939 and remember this he was born in 39 okay He's still alive. I would love to meet him. Oh, dang. I would love to meet him. I would love to meet this guy. He was born in 1939. He completed his undergraduate degree in mathematics at the University of Paris in 1959 and received the equivalent of a master's degree in astrophysics from the University of Lille Nord de France in 1961. He began his professional life as an astronomer at the Paris Observatory in 1961. He was awarded a Jules Verne Prize for his first ever science fiction novel called Les Subspace, published under a pseudonym. Valet moved to the United States in 1962 and began working as a research associate in astronomy at the University of Texas at Austin. While at McDonald Observatory, he helped compile NASA's first detailed informational map of Mars. In 1963, Valet relocated to Chicago. He was initially employed as a systems analyst at nearby Northwestern University while continuing to pursue non-institutional UFO research with his mentor, once again, J. Allen Hynek, the chair of university's astronomy department. Professionally, he began to conduct early research into artificial intelligence and received a PhD in industrial engineering and computer science from that institution in 1967. After that, he briefly worked for Royal Dutch Shell in Paris and the RCA service company in Cherry Hill, New Jersey as an engineer before joining the Stanford University Computer Center as a manager of information systems in 1969. In 1970, Valet became a consultant to Stanford applied physicist Peter A. Sturrock's Institute for Plasma Research. Upon learning that Valet had written several books about UFOs, Sturrock felt a professional obligation to, pursue, to peruse Valet's work, prompting his own research into the UFOs. In 1971, Valet left Stanford to join the Engelbart Group as a senior research engineer. His tenure there coincided with the group's immersion in Earhart Seminars seminars Training, or EST, which I think we've talked about. It's like EST was like a self-help thing from the 70s, kind of weird stuff. And other social experiments, which ultimately prompted his departure. While at the Institute for the Future, as a senior research fellow from 1972 to 1976, he succeeded Paul Barron as principal investigator on the large National Science Foundation Project for Computer Networking, which developed one of the first ARPANET conferencing systems called Planet, which predates instant messaging by many years. Hmm. So remember, this guy was born in 39, and he's working he's he was like one of the f- the front runners of instant messaging of computers of the internet of all this stuff the technology was spun off into infomedia a startup company founded by valet in 1976 although the firm formed several international spin-offs and partnered with a variety of prominent firms it failed to attain long-term profitability Following its sale in 1983 Jacques Valet entered the venture capital sphere as a partner at Sofinova 
From 1987 to 2010, he served as a general partner of several funds in Silicon Valley, most notably as the co-founder of the family of three Euro-American ventures funds in North America and Europe. As a private investor, he continues to serve as executive manager of Document. Documatica Financial, a San Francisco boutique focused on early-stage healthcare and technology startups. Among the companies which he spearheaded early-stage financings for, 14 have achieved initial public offerings, including Electronics for Imaging Accuray, developers of the cyber knife used in cancer surgery, Neophotonics, Neophotonics, developers of nanotechnology for optical networks, regeneration technologies, harmonic light waves, and synaptic pharmaceuticals, which specializes, specializes in neurotransmitter biology. Other companies financed by him include Handy Lab, which produced an instrument recognized as being transformative for oncology, were successfully acquired by Intel, AOL, Cisco, and Intuitive and Surgical Instruments. Wowza. So, like, this guy is, it just He's an overachiever. Me. Yeah. He has also served on the National Advisory Committee on University of Michigan College of Engineering and authored four books on high technology, including Computer Message Systems, Electronic Meetings, The Network Revolution, and The Heart of the Internet. And this guy was born in 1939. And he was like on the forefront of all of this stuff, of of these lasers used for cancer surgeries, of the internet. Like he was like when ARPANET was around before the internet, he was like on there creating instant messaging programs that were the first ever used. So it just floors me that this guy was yeah. born in 39 and he's still around. Yeah. I wonder, you said cyber knife. I wonder if that's the same thing as gamma knife. Jim. It, it could, it very well could be. Because when Jim had the ABM stuff in his brain, he had a gamma knife procedure. And that makes me think, wow, if this guy didn't do what he did, would Jim yeah. have been yeah. cured of would, the yeah, ABM? Yeah, exactly. That's nuts. And it's just, he was born in 39. So, which is, which yeah, is, it is. It just, it's it just is. crazy. And, and uh, so, yeah, anyway, enough raving about Jacques Vallée. You ever want to come on the show, Jacques? <laughs> <laughs> You're more than welcome. He's good with technology. I feel like we'd be able uh, yeah, to Yeah, he could probably help them. us with some stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> According to Vallée, he sighted an unidentified flying object over his home in May of 1955. Six years later in 1961, while working on the staff of the French Space Committee, Vallée claims to have witnessed the tracking tapes of an unknown object orbiting the Earth. The object was a retrograde satellite, that is a satellite orbiting the Earth in the opposite direction of the Earth's rotation. At the time that he observed this, there were no rockets powerful enough to launch such a satellite, so the team was quite excited as they assumed that the Earth's gravity had captured some sort of natural satellite or an asteroid. He claims that shortly after this, an unnamed supervisor entered the room and purposely erased the tapes. These events contributed to Valet's lifelong interest in the UFO phenomenon. In the mid-1960s, like many other UFO researchers, Valet initially attempted to validate the popular ETH or extraterrestrial hypothesis and the ETA extraterrestrial hypothesis is that UFOs are aliens from a distant planet. Mm -hmm. Okay. However, by 1969, his conclusions had changed and he publicly stated that the ETH was too narrow and ignored way too much data. He began exploring the commonalities between UFOs, cults, religious movements, demons, angels, ghosts, cryptids, and so on. He spec his speculation about these potential links was first detailed in his third UFO book called Passport to Magonia, From Folklore to Flying Saucers. So see, you can see that he's like Keel here, mm -hmm. where he's like, this stuff is all interconnected. Exploring the connection, yep. yep. 
As an alternative to the extraterrestrial visitation hypothesis, Valet suggested a multidimensional visitation hypothesis. This hypothesis represents an extension of the ETH where the alleged extraterrestrials could potentially be from anywhere. They could be from beyond space-time, thus they could coexist with humans yet remain undetected. Valet's opposition to the popular extraterrestrial hypothesis was not well received by prominent U.S. ufologists, hence he was viewed as something of an outcast. Indeed, he refers to himself as, quote, a heretic among heretics. Just like Keel mm-hmm. was an outcast mm-hmm. among outcasts, yep. he considers himself a heretic among heretics. Via professional association with, and we talked about some of these guys, with SRI and independent friendships with Harold Pudoff and CIA analyst Kid Green, who obtained a temporary security clearance for him in 1974, Jacques Vallée was intermittently consulted on classified remote viewing research throughout the 70s and 80s. And we did an episode about remote viewing. Mm -hmm. And he, I think we mentioned him that he helped with the remote viewing stuff. During the early remote viewing experiments led by Pudoff and Russell Targ in conjunction with Green as CIA contact monitor, he became acquainted with Yuri Geller, Edgar Mitchell, and Ingo Swan. Most recently, he has been associated, and this guy's name pops up all the time too, most recently he has been associated with Robert Bigelow as a consultant to the National Institute for Discovery Science and a member of the Scientific Advisory Board of Bigelow Airspace. Yeah, like Bigelow Airspace, say, to do with air- Bigelow space Airspace okay. constantly shows up in yes. our stuff lately. Mm-hmm. And of course, Valet was good friends with J. Allen Hynek, probably showed him the bet sphere that he took, <laughs> you know, that I'm, upset about, that I'm upset about. The two of them even have like interviews where they talk about this stuff. In 1975's The Edge of Reality, Valet and Hynek consider the possibility of what they call interlocking universe. Jacques Valet says, quote, what other wild hypothesis could we make? And Hynek says, there could be other universes with different quantum rules or vibration rates, if you will. Our own space-time continuum could be a cross-section through a universe with many more dimensions. Think what a hard time you would have convincing an aborigine that right now, through this room, TV pictures are passing, yet they're here. You have to have a transducer to see them, namely a TV set. Well, in the same sense, there may be an interlocking universe here right now. We have this idea of space. We always think of another universe being someplace else. It may not be someplace else. Maybe it's right here. That TV analogy is really interesting way to, to put it, it in perspective. It is. If you take, or radio if waves. You take somebody that's from one of those shut-off yeah communities like in africa or wherever they are and be like yeah they like they have no idea that there's waves Mm -hmm. radio waves microwaves all this stuff is going through them you know that yeah it it is freaky but i I totally get it that there could be that we're only a little cross-section of what could really be there Mm -hmm. with me so far oh yeah this is this is what i thought was really interesting about jacques valley Jacques Vallée in 1990 wrote a paper called, quote, Five Arguments Against the Extraterrestrial Origin of UFOs. All right, I'm going to try to make this quick. You ready? Yep, I feel ready. like I have to read almost all this thing. Talk super fast. So, and I, I feel like I talk too fast when I listen to the podcast. I need to talk slower. Oh, really? Yeah. Look, that's just how you talk. I know, but I feel like I talk too fast, like I should talk slower. Hmm. Scientific opinion has generally followed public opinion in the belief that UFOs either do not exist, which is the natural phenomena hypothesis, or if they do, they must represent evidence of a visitation by some advanced race of space travelers, which is the extraterrestrial hypothesis, or ETH. It is the view of the author that research on UFOs needs not be restricted to these two alternatives. On the contrary, the accumulated data base exhibits several patterns tending to indicate that UFOs are real, 
represent a previously unrecognized phenomena and that the facts do not support the common concept of, quote, space visitors. Over the last 40 years, we have observed the steady development of a group of aerial phenomena generally referred to as UFOs. After a brief attempt to explain the reports in terms of secret prototypes, blah, 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 the two theories that are either the natural phenomena hypothesis or the extraterrestrial hypothesis. A large majority of the scientific community, which is typically unaware of the observational data, except as reported in the press, continues to support the natural phenomena hypothesis. It asserts that all the reports can be explained as a combination of observing errors, classic atmospheric phenomena, and human-made objects, possibly combined with little-known psychological illusions, which are of no relevance, no relevance to physics. It concludes that no new knowledge is to be gained from further specialized study of the observations by scientists, perhaps with the exception of marginal improvements to the documentation of some altered states of perception. A majority of the public and the quasi-totality of the UFO researchers have always supported the ETH or extraterrestrial hypothesis. Under this hypothesis, UFOs are physical devices controlled by intelligent beings from other planets who have been visiting the Earth as part of a scientific survey begun at the time of the World War, very much in the fashion we ourselves plan to follow in exploring remote planetary environments. In their interpretation of the phenomenon, this survey includes the reconnaissance of strategic sites, the gathering of minerals and plant samples, and interaction with the human and animal life forms present on our planet. The recent interest in reported abductions of witnesses has contributed what many UFO researchers regard as convincing evidence that such extraterrestrial visitors are conducting a series of biological interventions designed to collect samples of human tissues and body fluids and are engaged in crossbreeding experiments for genetic purposes. The slow but steady accumulation of detailed reports and the continuing research on old cases makes it possible to test these hypotheses against an increasingly documented database. The natural phenomena hypothesis does not fare well under these tests. Many reports are quite specific in terms of the physical and biological parameters that can be derived from analysis of the interaction between the phenomenon and the environment. Remember, this is like scholarly paper, scholarly paper, so there's tons of big words. <laughs> At the same time, however, we find that the extraterrestrial hypothesis, too, is increasingly challenged by these new patterns that researchers are uncovering. So now we get to his five arguments. And this first one I totally get. Argument number one, the close encounter frequency. Approximately 20 years ago, when the first catalog of close encounter reports were, was compiled uh, by, by Jacques Vallée in 1969, I was surprised to find that it reached over 900 entries, well beyond the expectations of most researchers at the time. With the increased attention now placed on this category of sightings, the lists of unexplained close encounters have grown beyond this early catalog. Estimates place the size of the current sample between 3,000 and 10,000 cases, depending on the criteria that are used. We'll offer the figure of 5,000 as a conservative estimate. This remarkably large number can and should be used as a challenge to the natural phenomenon hypothesis. If UFOs were simply an atmospheric effect, such as plasma discharge, whatever, most of the still identified, unidentified cases could be accounted for by taking into consideration the corresponding patterns. Yet the same argument can be used against the extraterrestrial hypothesis. It is difficult to claim that space explorers would need to land 5,000 times on the surface of a planet to analyze its soil, take samples of the flora and fauna, and produce a complete map. While the extraterrestrial hypothesis could account for the 923 reportings in our 1969 compilation, the theory can really no longer be supported today. 
Neither is the figure of 5,000 a good estimate. Many indications converge to show that only one case in 10 might actually get reported. Therefore, the number of close encounters we need to explain is probably more along the order of 50,000. This does not take into account the fact that the overwhelming majority of our sources are located in Europe, the American continent, and Australia. It is logical to assume that the phenomena is worldwide and that we are missing the true magnitude of the problem by at least a factor of two. This leads to a figure of 100,000 events. If we still remain faithful to a strict interpretation of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, even this very large figure still underestimates the real number of actual landings. Shouldn't we assume that extraterrestrial explorers would land on our planet without regard for the presence of human witnesses? In fact, Claude Polar and I found that the geographic distribution of close encounters does indicate a pattern of avoidance of population centers, with a higher relative incidence of landings in deserts and areas without dwellings. If we followed this line of reasoning, then it would be conservative to multiply our factor by a number of 10 to account for the high ratio of sparsely populated over densely populated lands. This would place our estimate of close encounters at nearly a million landings to be explained. In other words, if human witnesses were equally distributed over the surface of the land and they reported every close encounter they observed, it should be about one million records. That's crazy. And then he does a bunch of stuff with math and charts that I couldn't even wrap my head around. And he says... He the was question, math was his undergraduate, yeah. right? Okay. It also shows that the total number of events should be 14 times the number of observed phenomena. This gives a total estimate of 14 million landings in 40 years if we strictly adhere to the extraterrestrial hypothesis. The question then to be asked is, what objectives could extraterrestrial visitors to the planet be pursuing? What would require them to need to land on the planet 14 million times? And <laughs> I, that's that's true. Yeah. You know, like, I've never thought about that before. It's like does it do they need to visit the planet that much to get soil samples to get plant samples DNA you could assume samples. that this would have been done right within a year they could have done this so why are if they, they still had advanced technology why are yeah. they still yeah it, like like yeah it, could, it should also be kept in mind that the surface of the earth is clearly visible from space unlike venus or any other planetary body shrouded in a dense atmosphere Furthermore, we have been broadcasting information on all aspects of our various cultures in the form of radio transmissions for most of this century and in the form of television for the last 30 years. So most of the parameters about our planet and our civilization should be easily acquired by unobtrusive remote technical means. The collecting of physical samples would require landing, but it could also be accomplished unobtrusively by a few carefully targeted missions of the type of our own Viking experiments on Mars. And that's true. It's like say that these really are visitors from outer space. Why do they have to land here so much? Mm -hmm. How much are they going to learn from probing someone's butt? Right. You know, and and I get that. I never really thought about that no, before. I haven't but it's like, if they're here just to get soil samples, plant samples, they could have done that five or six landings. Mm -hmm. And we're assuming if they're advanced enough to get here across the galaxy or whatever, they should just be able to scan the planet sure. instead of having to land here. Yeah, I never thought of that. Yep. Argument number two, physiology. The vast majority of reported aliens have a humanoid shape that is characterized by, and Corey brought this up in, in the last episode, mm -hmm. that it bothers him when any alien creature is humanoid. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of reported aliens have a humanoid shape that is characterized by two legs, two arms, and a head supporting the same origins of perception we have in the same number and general appearance. Their speech uses the same frequency range as ours, and their eyes are adapted to the same general segment of the electromagnetic spectrum. This indicates a genetic formulation that does not appear to differ from the human genome by more than a few percent. Such Although you could argue that 
they appear that way to put us at ease in a sense. If they appeared as like this octopus looking thing, it'd be much more traumatic than a humanoid. I think he gets, I think he gets into that if they can like change the way they look. Yeah. Such an observation, if the entities were in fact a product of independent evolution on another planet, as stated by the extraterrestrial hypothesis, would stretch our understanding of biology. Humans share the unique combination of gravity, solar radiation, atmospheric density, and chemical composition known on Earth which, with an array of creatures closely related to us through evolution, yet deprived of legs and arms like the dolphin or endowed with multiple eyes like the spiders. It should also be kept in mind that the human shape has evolved in response to an extremely narrow set of constraints. For example, it would not exist as it does today if the Earth had started out with twice its present mass, given a surface gravity of 1.38 Earth times Earth normal. Such an environment would have forced the development of a stronger skeleton and might have precluded bipeds altogether. Similarly, a planet with half its present mass and a surface gravity of 0.73 times would have also radically affected our shape. As pointed out by Dole in 1969, if the inclination of the equator had been 60 degrees instead of 23.5, seasonal weather changes would also be intolerable to us. Life would have had great difficulty in getting started and humans would have evolved in very different ways. For example, if the day was 100 hours long instead of 24, mankind as we know it might not have evolved or survived at all. How then can we expect that extraterrestrial visitors from a completely different planetary environment would not only resemble us but breathe our air and walk normally on the Earth? Even if by some unknown principle of exobiology the aliens did evolve naturally into the humanoid shape, wouldn't they be able to modify their bodies using genetic engineering techniques to enhance their ability to work and survive in space, as humans might have to do over the next century? This last argument can be countered by assuming that our, quote, visitors have precisely been created through genetic manipulation into a form with which we can interact. But if that is the case, why can't they produce human specimens that are indistinguishable from the actual population? Mm-hmm. Which is true. Like, if you're gonna, if you're able to... Well, but people believe that's... A thing. Yeah, that some people are... They're are, hybrids. Yeah, hybrids. Mm-hmm. The extraterrestrial f- theory fails to give a convincing answer on this point. Even more intriguing is the observation that the reported display recognizable human emotions, such as puzzlement, interest, or amusement, as in the Betty Hill case in 1961. This suggests not only biological similarity, but extensive social similarity, which I get. Like, they say sometimes aliens seem amused by them, or... Or angry. It's like why they have the human emotions too, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In summary, the physiology of the aliens conforming to human biology and culture to an extent that is not compatible with the extraterrestrial theory. Argument number three, abduction reports. The growing number of abduction reports is being used by a vocal segment of the UFO community as further evidence that we are in fact being visited by extraterrestrials, even if their origin has not yet been revealed. In the context of the present paper, a careful survey of the reported behavior of the alleged aliens argues exactly in the opposite direction. According to current UFO magazines and books, numbers of reported and documented alien abductions is now measured in multiples of a thousand. Such incidents are characterized by what the witness reports as being transported into a hollow, spherical, or hemispherical place and being subject to a medical examination. This is often, but not always, followed by the taking of blood samples, various kinds of sexual interaction, and loss of time. The entire episode is frequently wiped out of conscious memory, is only retrievable under hypnosis. At this writing, over 600 abductees have been interrogated by UFO researchers, sometimes assisted by clinical psychologists. 
Although nothing concrete seems to have been learned from these case studies about the origin and purpose of these visitors, those doing the investigations are vocal in their claim that the abductions are further evidence of extraterrestrials. In order to examine this claim, let us assume that extraterrestrial intelligence has indeed developed the ability and the desire to visit Earth. It is a reasonable assumption to expect that such visitors would know at least as much as we do in the fundamental scientific disciplines such as physics and biology. In particular, the visitors would presumably know as much about medical techniques and procedures as our own practitioners. Today, the average American doctor can draw blood, collect sperm or ova, and remove tissue samples from his or her patients without leaving permanent scars or inducing trauma. The current state of molecular biology, a science which is in its infancy on Earth, would already permit that same doctor to obtain unique genetic fingerprint information from such samples. He could also fertilize the ova and obtain test tube offspring, and it is conceivable that cloning could duplicate the beings thus produced. A team of scientists equipped with the commonly reported UFO technology would be in an excellent position to take control of blood banks, sperm banks, or collections of embryos available at major research hospitals and research centers without creating the massive disturbances described by abduction researchers. They would be able to get their samples and escape detection. Equipped with the state-of-the-art techniques of current U.S. medicine, it would be conceivable that the entire race could, in time, be restarted from this pool of genetic material. So this is a thought I've been having this whole time, is what if aliens are just future us? Oh, that's totally, that, that shows up a lot. Yeah. That shows up a lot. I and mean, the that, reason they're doing this is because without their intervention, we won't evolve into what their current state is. You know what I mean? But, but then if they are future us, why do they need to do... Why can't Maybe they... they're not taking samples. Yeah, but why can't, why can't they get a job at a blood bank? And just steal some of the blood. But like, I, why do that's they... my point, though. Maybe instead of taking stuff, they're leaving stuff behind that will cause this evolution to happen. It's, it's very possible. That actually showed up a couple times in here is the belief that aliens are us in the future. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if I've ever really bought that. I've never really thought about it till right now. <laughs> but whatever the supposed aliens are doing, if they actually perform what appears to be shockingly crude and cruel simulations of biological experiments on the bodies of their abductees, it is unlikely to represent any kind of scientific mission relevant to the goals of extraterrestrial visitors. Do you get what he's saying there? It's like, why, if they're so advanced, why are they doing these, why can't they just do this a different way Mm -hmm. instead of having to abduct, you know, you could go and get a whole batch of blood from, from, you know, it's like, why are, I don't know. I, I get what he's. I get what he's saying. This it's like terrible, abductions make no sense. This is terrible. Well, a, I would think maybe they don't have empathy, so they don't care that they're traumatizing like people. That's possible. That is possible. But I, this is a terrible analogy. But like, if you've ever watched the Vampire Diaries, the vampires that feed off of like squirrels and blood banks yeah. are not nearly as strong as the vampires that feed off of live human beings. So maybe getting samples from a live human is way more viable than a sample from a blood bank or something like that. That's just yeah. Uh, argument four is history. The extraterrestrial hypothesis was initially formulated at a time when the earliest sightings known dated around World War II. It could be argued that this major conflict was detected from space and that the observation of nuclear explosions on Earth caused the aliens to survey our planet uh, in an attempt to maybe assess the human race as a potential threat. But then they look back and they see that this has been happening forever. I mean, that there's been sightings of ships forever. Mm-hmm. It can be established, if it can be established that the phenomenon has indeed existed throughout history, adapting only its superficial shape, but not its underlying structure to the expectations of the host culture, 
then we are unlikely to be dealing with extraterrestrials doing a survey of the Earth. I mean, if they've been looking at the Earth forever, as far back as, as like old paintings with UFOs in them, mm-hmm. why are they still checking out the planet? I mean, they know everything there is to know. In the last 10 years, as molecular biology has become more glamorous than electronics or even aerospace for a modern civilization, it should not be surprising to find these aliens performing simulations of genetic engineering intervention. So it's saying that whatever is going on at the time is what the aliens are reflecting. Like when microbiology was a big thing, all of a sudden they're coming and doing microbiology Mm. tests on us, taking our stuff. Maybe it's just like some weird vacation for them. It could be. I mean, just because we've been to Hawaii doesn't mean we're going to yep. stop going there. In previous works, I have pointed out that aerial phenomenon very similar to our UFOs was reported in the 9th century in the form of vessels in the sky, as airships in the days of Jules Verne, as ghost rockets in 1946, as as spacecraft in more recent times, as if these ships mimicked human expectations. Everything works as if the UFO phenomenon remained constantly one step ahead of human technology. And that's true. Like, it's always the next step. Mm-hmm. And lastly, argument five, physical considerations. As witnesses become less reluctant in the reporting they experience, the notions that UFOs are, quote, somebody else's spacecraft, with the implication of a technology powered by an advanced propulsion system becomes less tenable and possibly less appealing scientifically than other notions. The phenomena to be explained include not only strange flying devices that are described as physical craft by the witnesses, but also objects and beings that exhibit the ability to appear and disappear very suddenly, to change their apparent shapes in continuous fashion, and to merge with other physical objects. Such reports seem absurd in terms of today's ordinary physics because they suggest a mastery of time and space that our own physical research cannot duplicate today. And that's like talking about the the tic-tacs that would... Mm veer in directions that a ship physically could not do so he is saying because these things are doing things that physically can't be done it doesn't make sense that it's from like another planet it makes more sense that it's from interdimensional that it's something because if it was from another planet and it has to follow the general rules of of physics it doesn't make sense that it that it can do that well he he is open to the idea though of uh, these being interdimensional crafts as opposed to extraterrestrial. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the five things from his paper. And I just thought that was a really fascinating paper, kind of showing why it doesn't make sense to conclude that UFOs are piloted from aliens from other planets. And I totally, I understand some of these. Mm-hmm. I really do. And he ends up by saying, at a minimum, the idea of extraterrestrial intervention should be updated to include current theoretical speculation about other models of the physical universe. So I totally understand yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of holes in the traditional theory, if yeah. you, you know, that you've pointed out. So. Yeah. So, like, he's on the same wavelength as Keel, that these things are some sort of overarching intelligence that mm-hmm. is either messing with us or whatever but that ghosts aren't one separate thing. UFOs aren't one separate thing. Bigfoot's not one separate thing. These are all part of the same thing. And I, I do buy that idea. You don't. I mean, you're I, interested by it. I don't it. buy it. I find it interesting. I just, I don't know. Yeah. And I do get Valet's stuff about, like, I get his five reasons. They make total sense to me. Mm-hmm. They really do. Like, I never thought before, like, the amount of of visitations that mm-hmm. they're supposedly killing cattle and mutilating cattle and stuff. It's like, why do they still need to do that? 
But, but I'm why? assuming they have some kind of Google Maps on their ship that they should know where everything is. And but they if no it's longer interdimensional, to... again, why? Why are they? Because doing it's just it if messing it's inter- with us. They're not. It's not even actually doing anything. It's just the the super spectrum messing with us. Hmm. I told you this was a dense. This yeah. was a deep one. Yeah, but I I am kind of a a keyist because I do believe what he's saying. I do believe in some ways that our belief system modifies what we see, whether or not it brings yes, it into 100%. reality. Or, but yep. I I I am I am a I'm on the keel. I'm on the keel boat. You're even I'm, keel with I'm keel. Even keel. <laughs> I am, and Jacques Vallée is just like a fascinating guy, mm-hmm. and I I love that the two of them both feel the same way and that they both consider themselves outcasts of outcasts because mm-hmm. they don't subscribe to what everybody else subscribes to that all these things are individual phenomena mm-hmm. i want to end with a couple things that i read on you know like keel is a fascinating guy and i don't know if i think he was truly believing all this stuff. You know uh, what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, on sure. Reddit, on Reddit, somebody said, oh, uh, Zelia Edgar is the girl from, oh, Green, from Bay. Green Bay. That's like okay. a big with the keel stuff. Okay. Uh, somebody named Megalodon Dentistry wrote on Reddit and said, friends, colleagues, and acquaintances have stated that Keel privately didn't take any of his stuff seriously, didn't believe in it, and saw it more as a form of entertainment. Most of the Mothman and MIB stuff outside of the first few sightings he got from Gray Barker, a proven hoaxer and prankster who even hoaxed stuff for an unwitting keel. Robert Schaefer and John Sherwood have written about this in past issues of Skeptical Inquirer. And somebody else says, Did John Keel get too close to the truth? Keel pretty much dropped off the face of the earth after 2001. He didn't write or do much, and in interviews after 2001, he stated that a lot of the Mothman prophecies was an attempt to create a, quote, modern-day mythology, and that his theories of ultra-terrestrials was a literary device that people misunderstood. Obviously, the last sections of the book say that the more you know about the reality of these things, the more they come for you and try to ruin your life. And Keel even states that the best thing to do is just turn your back on it. This is the basic message of the film. Is it possible that Keel was actually taking a negative spin on his own theories after the 2001 film release in order to try and debunk his investigations because they got too close to the truth? It would have ruined his own life and others if people believed. There are reports, although unverified, that Keel almost got onto a plane that would have hit the, uh, the World Trade Center when he was going on a press junket for his movie, but luckily canceled at the last minute. Wow. For a guy so adamant about convincing people these things were real from the 50s to 2000s, he did a severe 180 after the film came out, and after that didn't even talk about it often. So what does everyone think? And somebody else responds, with respect and with kindness, I think you're placing Keel on a pedestal that even he would feel weird about, which is saying a lot because Keel was mostly ego. And then somebody else says, let's remember who the man was. He wrote for Playboy. He placed himself at the forefront within the novelization of whatever phenomenon he was experiencing. He saw himself as a James Bond of the weird, which is not to say he didn't put together some fascinating theories in texts like The Eighth Tower, but he wasn't like other folks who claimed to see phenomena and he lost all credibility in the world. He built his credibility mostly on the stories of others. Personally, I think he was kind of like a real life Lockhart from Harry Potter. And I have no idea what that reference either means. Hmm. I, some, I do. Somebody else said, I think his later perspective in articulating the Point Pleasant phenomena as a modern day mythology and his theories as literary device is both beautiful and in character. At the end of the day, I think it illustrates that he truly didn't understand what happened, but he would try to spin it in a way that made him shine. Hmm. Yep. 
And I just want to end with this little interview from after the film came out. He was interviewed about the film. So Sci-Fi Online, the website Sci-Fi Online, asked, what do you think about the finished film? He said, I was pleased with the Hollywood interpretation. They got a lot of the stuff of the book into the movie, but with slight variations. But it revived a lot of memories of that period, which was a very traumatic period for me. I have no real complaints about it. It's Hollywood, and it's done well. That's my feeling about it. I worried at first how they were going to do the scene with the bridge, because I, I thought that might have looked like a piece of crap. But they did the collapse of the bridge beautifully. I thought Richard Gere was good in it, too. He didn't try to imitate me. That would be too big of a job. <laughs> I thought Alan Bates, playing his part, was very good in it, slinking around alleys, hiding from whatever he was hiding from. And then they ask, did you ever feel like you were being stalked? And Keel said, sure, sure. There's a chapter in the book about it. They worked a lot of stuff into the movie, and it did very well. Because a lot of the stuff sounds totally insane. The telephone stuff, telephones ringing when they were unhooked, when they weren't connected, mysterious voices on the phone. I went through all of that. They ask, how close did you come to really experiencing the Mothman? Keel says, I never saw the Mothman, but I saw people minutes after they had an experience with it, and they were in a state of total terror. I just happened to be in the vicinity at the time. They ask, it's taken a long time since you wrote the book for Hollywood to come calling. And Keel says, it took 30 years. I had many, many offers and would-be deals. Agents would call me and say, how soon can you get out here? And I'd say, as soon as I get your check. That would bring the conversations to a close. They all wanted something for nothing. They all had great deals for them, but not for me. I have one of the best agents in the country, maybe the world. And I'd say, well, you have to talk to my agent. And that would bring the conversation to a dead halt. They don't want to talk to agents. I know authors who've been tricked like that. Everyone's heard of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's a title from a college professor's book, and he got a total of $1,700 out of that, which is absurd, but they conned him into it. They promised him the moon, a world of publicity, cardboard figures of him standing in front of the theater, and all this stuff, and of course, none of it came true. And then he says, they ask, have you any idea why these things happen in this town and not somewhere else? And Keel says, well, it does happen in other places. You just don't hear about it. I just happened to be there, and I kept careful notes. If I hadn't been there, you'd never have heard about it, but I was there to record the whole thing step by step. As I was recording it, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, didn't know what was going on, so I withdrew from the whole thing. I had so much trouble with the telephone that I took the whole thing out and didn't have a telephone for 10 years. I've been afraid many times, but I've also spent a lot of my time in cemeteries at midnight. I've been inside the Great Pyramids alone. I've done a lot of interesting and dangerous things. I've trekked through the Himalayas alone. I'm six foot two, and the Tibetans are five foot two, so it was not a good idea to go very far, but I stepped over the border just to say that I could sit I step foot in Tibet. I'm not courageous or anything. I'm stupid. I take chances. A lot of people don't. They'll sit in the corner of their insurance office all their lives. And I want to end it with a quote from him. He says, quote, The most fearsome monsters of all may inhabit the dark corners of our mind, waiting for us to release them through our beliefs and gullibility. The phenomenon feeds on fear and belief. Sometimes it destroys us altogether. Other times it leads us upward into the labyrinth of electromagnetic frequencies that form a curtain in the area that we call windows and stalks us to drink our blood and creates all kinds of mischievous beliefs and misconceptions in our feeble little terrestrial minds. Hmm. So there you go. That is that was a dense episode, and I know dense. it wasn't and you super left stuff out. I know it wasn't super exciting, but I feel like I feel like at the heart of it, it's a really important theory theory mm-hmm. that all this stuff is not separate. It's all one overarching intelligence doing God knows what, God knows why. But I I do believe some of this i really do it's really weird though at the end to find out that there's a claim he didn't actually believe in any of it yeah 
That's interesting. So you, have you ever read or seen any of the Harry Potter movies? No. Really? I read part of the first book, and I think when I was dating Natalie, I think I watched some of the movies. Oh, I think you would Because like I it. remember really liking, like, my character in there that I loved was uh, the ditzy girl. What was her name? Oh, Luna? Luna. Yeah. Um, so Lockhart was, the he was only in one movie, and he was a professor. He was, like, a visiting professor that during that movie, and he was a self-proclaimed expert of like witchcraft and wizardry yeah and he wrote a bunch of books and he was like super publicized and all like huge ego and people looked up to him and swooned over him but when push came to shove he couldn't actually do magic he yeah. was terrible at it so, that, so, so that's like a that's like an a pretty good like he had the knowledge and he knew a lot about it but he could not himself put it into practice so like comparing him with keel that yes. was like a good comparison yeah, that the person so. so you totally got if what the that if was that's making. correct if he doesn't really actually had he's never had experiences or doesn't really truly believe in it yeah, yeah. But then when people say he didn't really believe in his own stuff, he didn't want to believe because the more you believe, the more the you experience stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, so like I said, I apologize if this was a boring episode, but I feel like it was an important one because I feel like this is important. It provides a different perspective. It does. On and all I feel like it's important. I feel about. like it's important. I feel like Keel's work was important. Even I do think he was genuine, but he's there's some factual errors in his stuff and mm. People accuse him of, of being more into the writing of it than the actual the stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I love Kiel. I love Jacques Vallée. I love their ideas. I love the theories. And I buy into a lot of the theories. I do. I think it's part of the conversation considering all the topics we cover on this show. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And, and he's right. A lot of the stuff deals with lights like lights flicker mm -hmm. you know ufos have been like shut off electricity mm -hmm. uh psychic stuff happens with electricity ghosts ghosts electric like there's so much that it does make sense that it might be on some other frequency mm -hmm. that these ultra terrestrials are coming through and doing stuff so i just think it's fascinating yeah very you know we'll Definitely. get <laughs> we'll have better episodes in the future <laughs> i don't think it was a bad episode no. i just think it's one of those episodes that if you don't care about it you're gonna be like oh that was kind of boring yeah but i do I think you. i do think the overall idea is important yes so I do too. if you take nothing else away from this take the idea that ghosts ufos bigfoot psychic powers missing 411 it's not all different things it's yeah. all one thing mm -hmm. we just don't know why they're doing it so there you go and I think it's important if you're into this stuff at all, you have to be open to different theories yeah, and ideas. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of people aren't. And I know. that's that's kind of the problem. Yeah. Let's see if we got a quick question. Okay. Well, we got the easy one. Okay. Our easy question was sent in by Anonymous, and the question is just, how is your summer going? Oh. <laughs> so that's... Fast. Very fast. It's going insanely fast. It's going fast. very fast. Like, uh, Monday is August 1st already, and I can't even believe it. No. I can't believe it's August 1st already. Mine kind of sucked because I wanted to do more stuff and I just mm. didn't. Yeah, it went by too fast. It, I don't know. You know, like I wanted to get out and check and do state parks. I wanted to visit state mm -hmm. parks, but A, Me gas too. is so expensive. Yeah. I can't yeah. really be driving. Well, gas all, prices at least are dropping Yeah, but now, I can't but... really be driving all over the place. And it's either so damn hot or the bugs and I just find reasons not to. So I just, it sucks. I haven't gone as ma on as many walks, and I found that out when I started summer school this past Monday, where the first day, at the end of the four hours, it's only four hours, I was just like dead. Mm -hmm. My legs hurt, my back hurt. Yeah, for me, it's been, the weather's been really preventing me yeah. from doing stuff. that I Jim and I, are one of our resolutions was to visit 12 uh, new state parks. Yeah. And yeah, it's been just so I haven't even been to one hot. state park. I haven't even been anywhere. 
anywhere. Yeah. Well, I have. I went hiking a few weeks ago with my girlfriends. We went for like a five mile, two hour hike through the kettles, which was insane. I mean, yeah. it was all hills and it was so hot. It was humid and there was no breeze whatsoever. And it was brutal. It was brutal. I mean, we had a great time, but it was brutal. And it's like, I don't want to be in that environment. I want to be cool. (laughs) I've walked at Woodland Dunes a couple times, Mm -hmm. but just small walks, you know, but even then I'm just pooped after it. So I haven't been as active. Uh, I'm super glad I did summer school. I really am because... Well, A, you could use the income. Oh God, yes. But the thing is, the reason I... The big reason I wanted to do it, and I was just talking about this with somebody yesterday, is I wanted to know if I am good at this or if this was just a thing at Washington where I work otherwise because I'm there with my friend Angie and I know everybody there. And it's like, am I genuinely good at this? So I went here and did this where I did not know a single teacher. I didn't know anybody that worked at the school. I didn't know any of the kids coming in. And it's really good. And I think that I am good at it. My strength is the way that I bond with the kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think some of that in a bad way is because I'm immature, you know, like I am like one of the kids told me the other day, they're like, you really are like a big kid. And Mm -hmm. I said, I know I am, but I feel like that's part of my strength that lets me bond with them. I was Mm -hmm. sitting with two boys in the tennis court the other day. And one of the boys said, I'm just really sad that you're not going to be here this year with us because I really like you. And, you know, stuff like that. It's like, ugh, makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. So I do think I'm really good at what I do. Just, just, just really good at bonding with the kids and mm-hmm. giving them someone to feel cares about them, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. So I am glad I did that. But other than that, the summer's been kind of a kind of a fail. I'm trying not to because I love fall and this I'm looking forward to fall weather. I'm trying not to wish my time away. My mom always says that to me. Don't wish your time away. Don't wish your time away. When I'm like, oh, it's only Tuesday. Why isn't it Friday yet? She's like, don't wish your time yeah, away. That's true. It is true. Um but it also, when you spend most of your time at work, it's hard not to wish your time away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the days that it is really nice out seems to be a lot of times the days we're at work. Yeah. So we don't get to enjoy the nice weather. And I don't us know. teachers always say at school when we were kids, summer vacation used to seem like it went forever. It stretched and now, on for and months. Now, it now it's just like. over in a blip. It's yeah. just like literally over in a blip. It's so crazy. good question. It was a sweet question asking yeah. how our summer was going. Mm-hmm. Um, my two song picks, I'm not going to. I'm not going to talk too much about them because I totally forgot about a song pick until this morning. Mm, So I was listening to some of my music on the way down here. And one of these songs, the second one I might have done on here already, but if I did, I'm going to do it again. My first song, uh, this song I love. And this, these are both 90s songs. This is like a 90s edition. Two songs from the 90s that I absolutely love. This first one I love, and everybody that I know that knows this song loves it, but it was never released as a single off the album. Some of the YouTube comments under it are, somebody wrote, this is definitely one of the best 90 songs ever written. Somebody else says, I remember being 16 years old and singing the song with so much passion like I understood it. Now that I'm 40, I actually do understand it, and I still sing it like I wrote it. <laughs> somebody else says, what a beat, that drummer, that guitar... That's singing. Wow. And somebody else says, the song is super underrated with a mad face after it. (laughs) And I love this song. This band is known more for their song, Good. It was good living with you. Oh. It is, the band is better than Ezra. Mm -hmm. 
that whole the whole album deluxe that good is on like their song good that they're known for that whole album is amazing i think that album is one of the best albums that came out in the 90s but the first song on the album is a song called in the blood and i remember i bought that cd and i put on that album and that first song it's just like holy crap this is a really really good song and you know i always talk about third eye blind and how mm-hmm. It was uh, the song Motorcycle Drive-By that I'm obsessed with. was never released as a single, but if you're into Third Eye Blind, you know that that is the song. That's their, their best song by far. There's like a cult around that song, and there really is. And I feel the same way with the song In the Blood by Better Than Ezra. It's just such a good song, and it was never released as a, sing- a single. A lot of people don't even know it exists, yeah. but to us that do know it exists, we love it. It's mm. just like it is one of the best 90s songs in my opinion. So the first song is In the Blood by Better Than Ezra. The second song I might have already talked about on here, but I don't know if I did or not. This is a band that I love. Like this this song is like one of my happy play songs that when I listen to it, it just makes me happy. Uh, some of the uh, some of the YouTube comments under the song, somebody wrote most underrated band on planet Earth. Somebody else says, this is one of the most beautiful songs about unrequited love ever conceived. Somebody else says, alternative rock at its best. Somebody else said, the the lead singer looks dorky in this video. (laughs) Uh, Somebody else said, came here for Angelina Jolie. She's in the video. This was like one of the first things she did. But the one that I'm there for is, and I think I've talked about her on here. She's on my list of crushes just... Not so much physically, but just because I think she's awesome, and that is the actress Amy Smart. You would know You've her. Talk, I, you yeah, you would know her. her if you saw her. She's in this video. I think she's seventeen. This was like her first ever, ever thing that she like acted in. And uh, the song is "It's About Time" by the Lemonheads. Like I love the. I lemon- remember if you've mentioned the song before. I love the hmm. Lemonheads. The Lemonheads were like such a good band. Uh, and it is the song it's about time it's like a pretty song there's harmony in it by juliana hatfield who evan dando yeah evan dando was like best friends with dating like like when you think of the Lemonheads, you think of juliana hatfield when you think of juliana hatfield you think of evan dando like they were kind of inseparable back in the early alternative rock days but it is the song it's about time features a very young Amy Smart and a very young Angelina Jolie in the video. And like Amy Smart just fascinates me because she was on Felicity. She like the prettiest I think she ever was. She was on Felicity. Hmm. She was just so pretty on there, but she just amazes me because she can play the hot girl. There's that movie where the guy gets something that he has to have a constant adrenaline flowing through his body. It's like an action movie from the nineties where you know, like after Speed came out where mm. this guy has to have constant adrenaline going through his body in order to stay alive because if he doesn't, oh. he dies. So okay. then she's like his girlfriend in the movie. But she can play the hot girl. She can play the sweet girl. She can play the bitchy girl. Huh. She can play the cute dorky girl. Like she can do all that. And she just fascinates me. Like I love Amy Smart. Amy Smart. And so it is the song It's About Time by the Lemonheads. I will post those in the strangers. Cool. Are we ready for a pickle joke? We're ready for a pickle joke. We didn't read this one. When a cucumber tours England, where does it go first? Piccadilly Circus? Yup. (laughs) 
That's all. I'm not reading anymore. <laughs> okay. They're just that bad. Our deets, you can email us at thestrangesessions at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at Strange Session without the final S. We are on Instagram where Krista does a fascinating job at The Strange Sessions. You can send postcards and snail mail to The Strange Sessions, P.O. Box 434, Manitowoc, Wisconsin, 54221-0434. There's a fruit fly right in my face. I know. It buzzed me before. Okay. <laughs> and you can call our lonely phone line at 920-443-9602. Yeah. Um, I feel like we're getting lost, and I don't know enough about this, in the Instagram algorithm. I don't know if you see people posting about how, oh, Instagram changed their algorithm again, and now I don't think people are seeing my posts, because we have a yeah. way less likes these days I'm sorry, but Instagram than we've sucks. ever gotten. Instagram sucks ever since it was bought by Meta. And they, uh, what's his nuts? Everything's a real now. What's his nuts from Facebook? Oh, Zuckerberg? Yeah, Zuckerberg said Instagram is going to change where you're going to be seeing more more videos that the yes. algorithm picks for you than actual friends and family, yep. which sucks because I used to love that my feed was nothing but friends and family. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, all this other crap started popping up. Totally. And Zuckerberg said, it's going to completely change. It's going to get even worse. So yeah. I'm like really souring right now on Instagram. Well, doesn't it just, he own Instagram? Yeah. So yes. why, why did he change it in a way that he, I don't even know. he says I'm, I'm becoming very, very anti-social media. Like, yeah, me I'm, too. I'm starting to hate social media. I wish I, we didn't have to be on it, to be I, honest. I know, but we kind of do. I, well, it's not that... I mean, our likes have gone way down, and we rarely get new followers now, and I think it's because we're we're lost or in this new suck. algorithm. We could suck. We could I mean, suck. it could. <laughs> people aren't... I don't think people find our podcast through social media, though, so I'm not no. worried about our listeners. Like, a lot of our latest ones are people searching on Spotify, Spotify or yes. people searching on, on or the, a friend of a friend yeah whatever. or searching on the pod but i i i'm but just if people want a place to come to to see content they're probably not even seeing it unless they go directly to our page yeah we also don't advertise ourselves a no, lot either not at all. you know yeah by the way we have t-shirts and mugs yeah, we never talk uh, about that like and subscribe i guess <laughs> rate I'll, us I'll rate guess. us Rate us, all that stuff. Support us on coffee. Support us on coffee. We love you guys that do support us yeah. on coffee. Wow, we never say any of that stuff. That's no, funny. and we got to go and slide into the side sessions now. Yeah. It's not a list today. It's a it's a topic that I've had bits and pieces. Well, good, because you didn't tell me if it was. It's a topic I had bits and pieces saved up around, and it's a topic that I love, but nobody else might. But we're going to see. Okay. Like, I think it's fascinating, but I also thought John Keel was fascinating, and mm -hmm. I got to feel people are going to be bored by this episode. Well, we'll see. Uh, when school starts, the week school starts, like towards the end of August or whatever, I think at that time I'm going to do an episode that's mostly going to be creepy stories that I've been saving off Reddit Sweet. or that stuff. So it's already, it's going to be nice and easy. Yeah. But uh, I just thought this was an important one just because of their theory. Yeah. Because Keel's a fascinating guy. I would love to have met him. Yeah. You know, Jacques Vallée, we could Pick still get on here. He could sit right here in this chair. <laughs> yeah. It should be so cool. But anyway, I think that's it for today. Um... Were we forgetting anything? I don't think so. Probably, but I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, thank you again, Stephanie, for all the gifts. Thank you, Coleman, for the food. Thank you, Carpenters, for the stuff. Yes. You guys, are, you guys are just seriously amazing. We love you guys. And at some point, we are going to travel the country and hug each and every one of you. Yep. Probably in autumn when we're not so sweaty. Totally. Yeah. But anyway, I think that's it for today. So until next time, from Krista and myself down in the strange cellar, stay, stay strange. strange.